You know, I don't watch much reality TV, but there was a few years there where I kept up with The Biggest Loser. Remember that show? There's a dozen or so people at a crisis point with their physical health really out of shape. And most of them had a backstory to explain why. There was grief. There was a shattered relationship. There was a, a broken dream. There were bad influences around them in some way. They need to get in shape because they to live a, holy, a healthy life, but also uh, to be able to just maybe survive for some of them. So over two to three months, they move off to a, to a particular spot, and, and they give full time these rigorous daily workouts. They had a special diet that was prepared for them. They were tended to by an entire uh, team of nutritionists and coaches and, and psychologists and, and doctors. And for most, it was a pretty brutal physical and emotional experience. Now, why is that? Well, this wasn't just about more sweat, less little Debbie. <laughs> this was a life change that was going on. It was, they were wanting to go a different way of thinking, a different way of feeling and, and prioritizing. And the results were often astonishing. You get to the end, didn't even look like the same people at all. And they'd laugh and they'd cry over the change in their life. But that wasn't ever meant to be the end of the story. New episodes would come out to keep up with those. But every so often, I come across an article or report about previous contestants on The Biggest Loser. How were they, how are they doing now? And many times, six months or a year or 18 months later, they were back in the exact same shape as they were before. Uh, they slipped back in the same patterns with the same results. Some of them were sad and angry about that. Others were just kind of resigned to this is the way it's always going to be for me. Some others were determined to get back in the same patterns that have made such a difference in their life. But what we saw there is that making a change is really hard work. And maybe even harder to make a change that's sustained over time, that lasting life change is really hard work. Now, now, you and I know that's true, just from ordinary, everyday life experiences. You buy a new car, and when you first buy it, you're going to park three spots away from everybody else, right? You're going to take care of every little thing. You're going to care for it, going to clean it just right. After the shine wears off, because a few dings on the side, not so much. <laughs> it changes. We try a new skill, develop a new skill, and there's lots and lots of failure that goes with learning a new skill, and many people tap out before they ever learn the new skill. New Year's resolutions, most are done by February 1st. 68% of them are done before that. It's really, really tough to produce lasting life change. And the same thing is true in our life as disciples of Jesus. Uh, some will joke about a, a youth camp experience with students. They go on such a mountaintop experience and Thursday night comes and make a list of their sins and throw their sins in the fire and they cry and they hug each other and make promises and they're so sincere. And then come back home and school starts a few weeks later and, and they, they, some of them crash or they kind of go into a holding pattern until fall retreat. And then we do it all again, right? Same thing and a little bit and then they kind of crash or, or hold until you get at the spring, the, the winter ski retreat, right? And then you kind of do the same thing again until you get to summer camp again. And, and it's over and over again. And we look at that and say, oh, you know, that's just kind of the way it is. But the facts are that many adult Christians follow the exact same pattern. We plug and play what we call the normal Christian life. And then we can get convicted by a particular message. 
or we go to a conference, which is just the adult version of camp, <laughs> and we get excited about what's going on. Our emotions get stirred or some crisis brings us pain. And we pray, we say, Lord, from this time on, it's going to be different. Things are going to be changed. It's going to be, it's going, there's nothing going to be the same from this point on. And you sincerely mean it until you don't. <laughs> and six months, 12 months, 18 months later, your faith is right back in the exact same spot that it was before. Listen, this is really true. Some of us in this room this morning have been walking with Jesus for decades, but the reality is we've lived the same 18 to 24 months of our faith over and over dozens of times. Just looping over and over again, and we get stuck in the same pattern because faith change that last is hard work. We've been talking all this year about thriving and describing a life that is marked by intimacy with God, obedience to God, and confidence in God. But you know that it's never about behavior modification, right? It's never about just a momentary burst of enthusiasm for the things of God. No, it's about living a whole life defined by Jesus, captivated by Jesus, 24-7, 365, centered around Jesus with every breath across our life until we step into his presence. Jesus himself even said, this is, let me describe to you what it means to be a saved person. Here's what he said. The one who endures to the end will be saved. The expectation is that disciples will hold on and hold firm and keep growing and keep moving across an entire lifetime, not in order to get saved. That happens when we trust the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, but because we are saved, <laughs> We then choose to live a life that's faithful to him, walking every life in every moment in every circumstance with every kind of people across every life stage for a lifetime until we step into Jesus' presence. And what that requires is a focused sense of purpose in life which is what we've been looking at these last few weeks as we walk through Nehemiah. We're going to finish up our journey with Nehemiah today. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, you go ahead and turn there to Nehemiah chapter 13. This is a reminder of kind of how this came about. Years earlier, there was a rebellion of God's people. And God's city and God's temple were destroyed. God's people were banished and they were carried off to pagan lands. And they were there for decades. And then some returned, they rebuilt the temple so they could worship. And then Nehemiah came back and they rebuilt the wall so the city would have an identity and security. And you go to Nehemiah 9, you find the people gathered there. They heard the word of God and they confessed their sin. And what they said was, Lord, you've been faithful. We've not been faithful. But starting today, things change. Sorry, it's going to be different from now on. We're going to obey your law we're going to keep the Sabbath. We're going to provide for the upkeep of the temple. We're not going to intermarry with the peoples around us. We're, we're not going to do it. It's a sincere commitment. So everything seemed like it was on the right track. So Nehemiah went on vacation. Remember, he took a leave of absence from his, his post with the king of Persia to come and lead this rebuilding effort. And so after 12 years, he went back for a visit. We don't know how long he was back. But eventually he got word of some problems in Jerusalem and he returned. And the first thing he noticed was that the temple was not being provided for and cared for. And then he saw what was going on on a Sabbath day. And Carly's going to come and read this for us. Would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? 
We're in Nehemiah 13, and we're going to begin in verse 15 and see what Nehemiah saw on this Sabbath day. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath day. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor. O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord. We give thanks to God. Thank you, Carly, for reading it. Thanks. You can be seated. So he gets there, and here's what he discovers. Everything they had promised not to do, they were doing. They were struggling with a lasting sense of faith or life change. What we want to ask ourselves today is, how do we avoid that? How do we live renewed? How do we get unstuck? How do we stop this merry-go-round doing the same thing over and over again so we live a life that is continually growing across a lifetime? And the first thing to notice is this, that we are renewed to live with purpose when we choose godliness in the world. So he talks about the Sabbath. God's people were commanded to practice a Sabbath day. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. One day out of every seven in which they were to rest stop all work and the normal patterns of life. They were to worship toward God and connect with God's people and to spend time in reflection, looking back and evaluating with the week before, looking ahead to what's coming before. This idea of Sabbath was an ongoing rhythm of life for the people of God. And it made evident that Yahweh's people were different than everybody else. They were different than the world around them. But, but when, when he got there, that Sabbath they rolled around each week, it looked like the people of God were, were found working and buying and selling just like all the other pagan nations around them. There was no noticeable difference in the lifestyle between God's people and those who didn't recognize God at all. They were just going with the flow of the surrounding culture. Now, we still face that challenge today, every day. You and I swim in the waters of a culture that has its own priorities and values. It's established its own set of standards for what it applauds or opposes or supports or, or cancels. And many of those things uh, don't match God's heart. And what we see over and over again, study after study has shown that those who say that Jesus is Lord and those who don't recognize him at all, there's not much difference in the lifestyle choices that are that are there. 
So you see, if we just go with the flow of the culture, we will drift away from God and will not endure as faithful disciples across a lifetime. So how are we going to do that? How are we going to stand up with this steady flow that's against the things of God? What's going to require us to choose godliness as we go about in the world? Now, the word godliness is not one we use much anymore, but you think about it, and what it means is like God reflecting God, life marked by the priorities and values of God, that it matches his ways. It's measured by his standard, by his word. It's motivated to action by what God loves or what, what grieves him. And disciples who, who pursue that will be marked and their lives will be distinctive. They will be unique and different from anybody else. And there's a reason for that. God was very clear in Isaiah 55 and he says this, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So if I order my life by God's thoughts and God's ways, it's not going to be like everybody else. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. It operates by a different standard. Now somehow, somewhere along the line, we've lost the idea that disciples of Jesus are supposed to be different from the world. We're supposed to be separated out from the world. And if our version of following Jesus means that we're the same kind of friend and the same kind of employee and the same kind of neighbor and the same kind of citizen and the same kind of Instagram and, Instagram and Facebook poster and the same kind of, of chooser of entertainment and those kind of things as everybody else, it may not be Jesus we're following anymore. Some of you have seen the show, The Chosen, Life Without Jesus, and the logo of The Chosen gets it just right. All the teal-colored fish there are representing disciples who have come to Jesus and they're against the flow of all the others. They're going the opposite direction of all the others. We're swimming against the flow. And let's apply this to something like the, like the Sabbath principle. Think about this. When you think about your time week after week, does it come to your mind, oh, I have a king who has laid claim to one day out of every seven, not one hour and a half on a day out of seven, one day out of every seven, that I am to rest and to worship and look to him. Is that the way you think about it? Or have you bought the world's view of this very recent invention that Sunday is just one day out of what we call the weekend, and I work really, really hard, and I get to the weekend, and I get to pick what I want to do? And I can choose. It's kind of a lifestyle choice that is there. This is a great burden to us in these days because we're seeing increasing numbers of Living Hope disciples who are completely okay with saying, hey, I'll gather for worship one out of every three Sundays, one out of every four Sundays. It's okay. It's not like God's ways. And we can take that same thing and apply it to our spending and, how we, how, and our possessions and how we define success or relationships. If we're going to follow him, we're going to be distinctive, and that's going to be disruptive for us and for others. It's going to raise tensions. Yes, it's going to raise questions. You're going to get odd looks. You're going to get strange comments, right, and all kinds of opportunities to explain why you choose to live the way you do. Now, how are we going to do that? How are we ever going to train ourselves to begin to live against a world that's flowing so strongly against us? Listen to what Paul says every day. Train yourself for godliness. Train yourself 
for God. So we exercise the muscles of our heart and our mind and our affections and our will in the direction of God and his ways so that we're strong enough to stand when the current of the culture goes in an opposite or a different kind of direction. So we want to be intentional to fill and saturate our minds with God's word, to apply biblical truth to every aspect of our life. This is exactly what Paul said when he said, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts this in his paraphrase, the message. He says this, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without ever even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. And when you're changed from the inside out in a godly direction, you will stand strong no matter how, how swift the current of the culture is in the opposite direction where that is. So we're going to choose godliness in the world. But now understand what showed up from God's people on that Sabbath day was not just a moment of weakness. It really was a reflection of a faith trajectory uh, that they had already set personally in their homes. And so the second reality we want to say we're renewed to live with purpose when we pursue holiness from home. And see, what Nehemiah saw was evidence that the people were ignoring God-given boundaries or expectations in their family life. The boundary was no intermarrying with the pagan peoples around them. So you get to verse 23, and he says there, I saw that they were married with, and names three specific pagan peoples they were intermarrying with. Verses 25 to 27, he describes what God had been saying for centuries. Don't give your sons to them. Don't give your daughters to people that are outside of the covenant people of God. Don't do that. This was not a, a racism thing at all. This was a matter of the heart. Now, why is that? Because marriage, what it does is designed by God as the most intimate of human relationships. That's why he calls it one flesh. So at the, at the core that we're supposed to be one flesh in, in intellect and will and affection and spirit and all those things that are together. Because the marriage relationship displays to the world the covenant faithfulness between God and his people. But if at the core of that relationship you have two separate allegiances the husband serving this God and the wife serving this God, what is most likely to happen is that the pagan spouse would turn the heart of the other spouse away from the Lord. And at the core of the family, you dilute the commitment to God as the, the primary uh, uh, one we're really faithful to above all. The expectation was that they would, the parents would pass on their faith to the next generation. Back in Deuteronomy 6, we're told that Moses taught the people the law. And then he said, look, take these principles and these truths from the time you get up to the time you go to bed, wherever you go, talk about them with your children. So your children will know who God is and why we serve him, why we follow him, why we obey him. This is the basis of our family discipleship initiative here at Living Hope. It's why we have parent gatherings every Sunday morning in the rec center at 930 to train our parents exactly how to do this kind of thing. But look at verse 24. What well, it says, half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. The children had become fluent in the language of the surrounding culture. 
So we put it in today's terms. They knew all the celebrities. They knew all the social media platforms. They knew about fashion. They knew what they needed to, to, to excel in academics and how to get a good job and make their way in the world. They knew how to, how to do the athletics that they had been made a part of and those kind of things. But they didn't know the language of godly faith. They didn't know the language of the gospel in their lives. Now, how had that happened? Uh, The people had begun to treat God as an optional downline accessory to life rather than the essential core of it. In other words, they had begun to treat God like choosing the upholstery package in your car and not the engine itself. They'd gotten confused. So commands of God, eh, not a big deal, right? And so they compromised and disobeyed in one area that diluted and infected everything else. How did they get there? How did these most basic things get so jacked up in their mind? They had forgotten who they were. That before everything else, they would be a people holy to the Lord. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of somebody who's holy, Often we have odd or strange ideas about that, negative. It's only the really serious attitude, not much fun, never laughing much, always the rule keepers, a lot of guilt and shame, those kind of things. But listen to what Peter says. Peter said, as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." He reminds us that living holy starts with being called by him. It comes out of a relationship with the king. Listen, if you've never heard this before, I want you to know this. The ridiculously good news of the gospel is that Jesus has made unholy sinners like me and like you into holy saints. It's a crazy thing that on the cross, he took our sin away, took our sin penalty. At the same time, he gave us his sinless record. He put his holy life into us so that now when God looks at us, what he says is, oh, you're mine. You're holy. You're set apart as mine. That's our spiritual position before God if we've trusted Christ. What's a challenge is to live that out in our practice day to day. So he says, so you be holy in all your, all your conduct. So holy behaviors are that which begin to match God's character. We live holy. What's happening is we are taking the life of heaven and it's spilling over into us, into our everyday life. It's giving evidence that we really are a people who are set apart to belong to him first above everything else. You've already sung it a couple of times this morning. Here I am. All I have is yours. And that the king has a first claim on everything. So to live holy means I recognize my relationships are set apart for God and his ways first. Whether I'm married or single, whatever friendships that I have, they're to be holy. My, my, uh, all of, of my responsibilities are to be holy and reflect his character. Whether it's raising children or in the work or as a citizen in society, 
all of, of my resources that I have been given are to be laid out and holy. Lord, you use these. My body, my physical health, my money, my time, my, my possessions, my romances, my, my dreams, my smartphone, my streaming service, what comes in through my, my computer, all of that to be holy to the Lord. I love what the Heidelberg Confession says. It says this, I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm not mine. He's got a prior claim on everything there is about me. That's what it means to begin to live holy. So how do I do that? How do I renew that to where consistently I'm living more and more holy across a lifetime? That's hard work. Because our hearts are fickle, easily deceived. The world's overflowing with options that are, are not holy. How, how are we going to do that every day? Examine your heart and confess your sin. It's a good thing to do at the end of the day. Just lay out your life in prayer and ask God questions about your motives, your words, your actions, your relationships in that day. Lord, did, did all this match your character? Did all this line up with your word? Would you call this holy? And at the slightest nudge of the Spirit, you confess that and ask for his help in repenting and turning away from it. And if you have the availability, tell another brother or sister, ask him to pray with you. And the great thing is that we're given this promise explicitly for this in 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will help us live holy so we come to him on a regular basis. So, so we're, we're going to do that, and, but here's what you've got to realize. A life committed to living godly in the culture and living holy personally from the inside out is not going to come without struggle and opposition. So the third thing to realize that we're going to live this across life with purpose is that we're going to engage in the warfare of Christ. Now, as you read this, you pick up kind of this pattern with Nehemiah, right? Verse 15, he says, I warned you. Verse 17, I confronted them. Verse 21, I warned you, I'll lay hands on you. And then my favorite verse, maybe in the Bible, verse 25, and I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair, <laughs> So I read that and you guys say, Nehemiah, are you okay? Everything all right? <laughs> Somebody's kind of lost a little, little thing here. What, is this our model? Is this what we're supposed to do? Are we supposed to be just kind of ticked off, going through the world, taking people out? Is that the way this works? Seems a little odd. Well, no. And we get a clue what's going on here from what Nehemiah is fighting. He's fighting sin and all its family members. <laughs> Disobedience, compromise, distortion, negligence, spiritual apathy, that's what he's fighting. God hates sin. And God hates sin because of what it does to the lives of those that he loves and to the world that he made. He comes against that. So Nehemiah is acting out the heart of God and pointing ahead to the ministry of Jesus. Because here's what we know. There's an enemy who opposes God and means to derail our living faithfully to him in a lifetime. We've already seen it throughout the book of Nehemiah. 
There was a time when, when it was outsider pagans coming against people of God, Sambalat and Tobiah. Now it's disobedient insiders who are coming against the purposes of God. And each of them come from the same source, the same whisper of a snake that we first heard in the Garden of Eden that said, you don't have to worry about God, don't have to worry about what he says. Now, when John describes this in Revelation 12, here's how he puts it. The dragon became furious, went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And here's what you got to know. If you're a disciple of Jesus and all year long you've been saying, I want to thrive, I want to thrive, that's what I'm going to do. You got to understand, that's you. People who keep the commandments of Jesus and hold the testimony of Jesus. And what that means is there is a dragon serpent, the enemy we call Satan, who intends to take you out. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy anything of God in you or around you. You're a target. So we have a real enemy who's coming against us as we try to live this life. We have a real enemy, but we have a stronger Savior. And so Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, you got to get out of your head. This is not Jesus meek and mild with a permanent wave and his golden locks, talking real soft and quiet. No. He walked in the temple the first day. He made a whip. He drove out animals. He turned over tables. Why? Because what they were doing was keeping people from the purpose of God. He went against the religious authorities of the day and and spoke strong words to them. You're like whitewashed tombs, he said. You're killing people because of what they were saying didn't match with the character of God. He came to fight. And why? First John 3 says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to crush the head of the serpent. He came to take the dragon out through his perfect life, his bloody cross took care of sin, his empty tomb took care of death and hell. Remember what he said on the cross? It is what? Finished. It's done. This battle is over. It's won already. It's already been done in that way. So listen, when you're trying to faithfully follow Christ and trying to endure, you you got to expect this. The enemy of our souls will come after you. This will not be easy. It will not be tulips and lollipops. It's just not going to be. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. It's going to hurt. It's going to break your heart. It's going to be a struggle. How are we going to ever, every day, do that? Every day, Paul says, 1 Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Of faith. Now, look, this is not better life management. This is not positive thinking. It's not positive speaking. It's not creating something with your words. It's not better self-discipline or effort or more sincere spirituality in that way. No, it is trusting the victory of Jesus into our living because we have spiritual knowledge. We are not ignorant of his schemes. We know what the devil's gonna do. He's gonna do that kind of junk. But we also know about the plan of our God through a savior who's gonna come and indwell us by his power. He's given us the shield of faith. So we believe in the finished and sufficient work of Christ that will extinguish all the darts of the enemy. We have the sword of the spirit. 
the word of God so we can move forward with truth that pushed back the lies. And inside of us, we had the resurrection power of Jesus. And here's what this Bible says about the resurrection. The death could not keep its hold on him. So we have his power in us. What that means is the death of sin and temptation, all that Satan brings, cannot keep its hold on us either. So we can battle him. We can punch back against him because he's a bully and he moves away when you punch back. The scripture says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Can't just roll over and play dead. Gotta resist him. It's just coming against us. So if we're going to live faithful, we're going to choose godly, we're going to live holy, we're going to fight the devil, and ultimately we're going to live God's mission with the church. You know, this whole thing of Nehemiah, building the temple on the wall was never the ultimate goal. God was working out his eternal purpose in the world, and Jerusalem was going to be right at the center of it. And so as you get these last verses in Nehemiah 13, beginning in verse 28, uh, Nehemiah is like a head coach in the huddle when there's less than a minute to go. And Kentucky's going to beat Florida, even though there's a minute to go. There's a head coach, right? He's looking him right in the eye. And verse 28, he says, hey, I found there's a guy there who's a relative of Sanballat, and I chased him out. He wanted to ensure that the team had unity. He wanted to clarify their commitments. In our church, our unity is built on our common faith in Christ and on our membership covenant with one another. You can only be a member here by entering into covenant with us, which defines our privileges and our responsibilities. That these privileges, commitments we make to Jesus and to one another. And so, so he goes to clarify who's in. And in verse 30, he, he gives the assignments. He says to the Levites and the priests, get to your assignments. He focuses the people on their assignments. One of the covenant assignments and commitments that we have made focuses on our mission as disciples of Jesus. This is what our covenant says. We commit to faithfully make more disciples because the gospel calls us to be a part of God's eternal and global plan of redemption as ambassadors for King Jesus. Until Christ returns, we will live on mission by consistently displaying and declaring the good news of Jesus where we live, work, learn, and play. If you're a member, that's what you committed to. You committed to be a part of that mission. And what we said is, in our day, here's what we're going to do. We're going to impact our homes, our neighbors, and every generation with the hope of Jesus. You have a part to play in that. It's what you committed. It's what you promised that you would do when you became a member. So we're unified, living out the mission. The last thing he does is, hey, I got the wood for the fire. Let's get to it. He gathers the resources that are there. We don't no longer need wood to fire up the altars He's given us people with gifts and abilities and resources and facilities and our homes and, and relational influence and the gospel and the Holy Spirit has given us all that we, we need. Having nice people with a religious component to life was never the goal. Our king enlists us in a mission. So how are we going to endure? How are we going to stay faithful across a lifetime? Every day we do what he assigned us. Make much of Jesus. Make more disciples. 
Make much of Jesus, make more disciples. As each of us live out our covenant commitment to this faith family, we will become exactly what Jesus saw in Matthew 5 when he said, you are the light of the world. City Sentinel Hill can't be hidden so your light shine before people so they can see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Get to the last verse of Nehemiah. And he says, remember me. Oh my God, it's the third time he said that. Remember me, oh God. This is not that God would forget. <laughs> what he's saying is, Lord, here's, here's my life. Here's all that I have and all that I am. I've been faithful to you, to your calling, with these relationships, with these people, in this specific time. I've been faithful. Here's what I got. Can I ask you something? On the current path of your spiritual life, could you say that to your king when he arrives? Now listen, I know faith change across a lifetime is really hard. Could you say it? Some of you can't because you've never entered a relationship with him at, at all. So this morning can be your day that you run to him and you confess that you're a sinner and you need a savior. And he says, if you call on me, I'll save you. I'll rest you. I'll make you new from the inside out. There's a bunch of us here today and we have trusted Christ. And if the truth be known, what we need to say is, Lord, here's the truth. I'm spiritually out of shape and I'm unhealthy as a disciple. I've been coasting. I've been going with the flow of the culture. I've been eating spiritual junk food. And if something doesn't change, I'm not gonna be able to thrive and live the life you saved me to live. And so today's your day to repent and to change that and to move in a different direction. What are you gonna repent to do? I'm sorry is one thing. What are you gonna repent to do? Here's what you're gonna do every day. You're going to train for godliness by, by saturating your mind with God's word. You're going to pursue holiness by examining your heart and confessing so you reorient your life consistently to God's ways. You're going to resist the temptation and lies of the enemy with the power of the resurrection. And every day, you're going to do your part in the mission of making Jesus known and making more disciples. And if you and I will do that. When the king returns, and friends, it's not long now, till he returns, we can stand before him and we can say, Lord, here's my life. I've been faithful to you with all I have and all I am in every circumstance, across every stage of my life. I've been faithful to you. If we can do that, our king will say, oh, well done. Enter into the joy Let's share it forever. Bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm going to ask our care leaders to go ahead and make their way up here to the front. In just a moment, you're going to have the opportunity to pray. And we'll give you the opportunity to either come here and kneel at the front and pray, or there will be people here you can pray with. Whatever maybe the Lord has prompted this morning for you, or maybe something else the Lord is dealing with. Lord, we want this morning to walk out of here with our eyes firmly set on the kind of life we want to live. Living faith change for a lifetime is really hard. Lord, would you help us to do the work we need to do right now? Some of us need to repent. 
when you come to a brother or sister and pray, we need to look and see what you're saying about what the next step is. Help us to obey so we can live the life you've intended us to live, that we really can thrive with joy for our good and for your glory. We're so grateful. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.